Let's pray. Father, indeed, holy, holy, holy is your name. The glory, the heavy glory that surrounds your throne is your very being. Lord, the thought that we could come into your presence is most humbling. We deserve nothing but judgment. And yet, in your grace and in your mercy, you gave us your Son, who came, and that glory that was there, John says, we saw your glory in this one, the God-man. The glory was displayed at the transfiguration, a glimpse of what is yet to come. That glory, the cross departs as your son, our Savior, takes on our sin. The Lord, he rose from the dead. And he's interceding in your glorious presence on our behalf at this very moment. And we marvel and we thank you. Father, guide us as we go to this text, as we wrap up our discussion of 1 Peter, an epistle of grace. In it, we see all that you have done for us and all that you are doing and all that you will do. And we praise you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Peter chapter 5, if you would please turn there. It is hard to believe that today we are going to conclude our study of this New Testament epistle. I know you thought it would never come. I'm excited because we are going to journey into 2 Peter starting next week. Uh, it's one of my favorite New Testament books. I thought I'd get a few chuckles out of that because you've heard me say that with all the books, but I really do. Uh, 2 Peter and Jude, which we're going to look at at both, are extremely timely letters for us as a church, not to mention 1 Peter. But we're at 1 Peter 5, 12. It's the closing. I don't know about you, but I find it hard at times to know how to to wrap up an email. I mean, warmly, David. Best regards, David. I mean, in Christ, David. You know, how do you wrap it up? And so this week, I, I found some suggestions. I thought you might enjoy these. You might find them useful. I'll just give you five. One suggests, no trees were destroyed in the sending of this message. However, a significant number of electrons were terribly inconvenienced. That's one. Second, congrats on reading this whole email. <laughs> I love that. I've had many a students, I don't think, read any of it. This one's great. Thanks. I'll see myself out. There you go. Or this one, anonymously, David, right? And then the last one, this is, this is good. iPhone, I typos, I apologize. So... <laughs> How do you wrap up a letter? And Peter is coming to the end here in verses 12 through 14, and he provides us some concluding words. If you're following along in the outline that you have online or, or here in person, you'll see these concluding words, and we're going to break them down. It's interesting as we dive into this, there is a standard way in which the New Testament letters end. They're not atypical of first century letters. There are a couple things that are distinct, which the first of these elements is a greetings from so-and-so. This is a rather unique thing with New Testament writings of the first century. 
And we're going to see that here, uh, that so-and-so greets you. Aunt Betsy loves your crocheted sweater that you're wearing that she made for you, you know, blah, blah, blah. You'll see that. There's a comment about the messenger. <clears throat> Usually we have someone who's going to take the letter and deliver it. It's a bit of an endorsement. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Usually the writer gives us a, another statement about why he wrote. And so we'll see that as well here. It should not surprise us. We would expect that. It's kind of, let me reiterate what I've been telling you in the last five chapters. And then it closes with a blessing or a prayer. All of these elements we're going to see. And in so doing, Peter's going to give us a couple commands in the final, as well as a couple exhortations or reasons why he's writing, I should say. Example, let me, let me just, I thought, how do we put this in modern terms? So if I was writing a letter to an, another church, we might say, Pastor Michael, who I've had the privilege of serving with, will be delivering the letter. The church in Westfield, CBF, greets you along with Tom Flynn, right? You've got to throw that in, right? Some of you who don't know Tom Flynn, he's our greeter normally in the parking lot. They're in Florida, so I can pick on him today. The letter that Pastor Michael is sending to you was written to update you concerning the latest ministry and encourage you to love God and love others well. The Lord bless you. That, that would be a modern rendition of a closing, and that's what we're going to see here with Peter. So let's read these three verses. <clears throat> Through Sylvanus, whom I know to be a faithful brother, by the way, what does that tell us about our audience in relation to Sylvanus? What do we know? They have to know who he is, right? Otherwise, why did you mention his name? And he says, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. That's the first command. The church in Babylon, chosen together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, or John Mark, as we know him to be, and he refers to him as my son. Here's the second. Greet one another with a loving kiss. My college students always loved hearing that line. They just took, sat up and said, no, 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 it's not what you think. We'll talk about it in a minute. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So the first thing we see in this closing and that following in your notes is the circumstances surrounding the letter. The first question is, who is Savannah? Who is he? You might know him better as Silas. The names were used interchangeably. You say, that name's familiar. It should. He occurs 16 times in the New Testament. This isn't just some fellow who comes on the scene. And, and No, no, he's involved heavily. He's referred to as a prophet in the book of Acts. He will serve as a significant leader in the Jerusalem church. In fact, in Acts 15, the first church council ever in history, the Jerusalem council, they've got to figure out what to do with all these Gentiles becoming believers. <clears throat> and so a letter is written to the church at large and the Jerusalem church sends out representatives, you know, Saul, Barnabas, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, and they will select Silas, which tells us, <clears throat> I mean, when the teacher gives a note to Johnny to go take to the principal or to the, the, the library. Johnny's got a pretty significant job, right? It's very significant that the council in Jerusalem would say, Silas, we want you to join Saul and Barnabas and Judas in taking this letter. Tells us Silas is very important in the early church. He's significant. 
so significant we know later in Acts he will join Paul on his second missionary journey. That journey took two years and covered nearly 2,100 miles. Significant. Silas will join Luke. He'll join Timothy on that journey. He'll also, we're told in the book of Acts, will join uh, Paul in getting beaten in the Agora at Philippi, imprisoned for the night. Later, they will flee from Thessaloniki. So, uh, yeah, Silas was there. He knows full well. He's mentioned, Silas, is in the greeting of three New Testament letters, First and Second Thessalonians and Second Corinthians. And here we see, notice how Peter describes him. I know him to be a faithful brother. He's a colleague. He's someone I hold dear. I know him. He should know him. Peter and Silas served together in the early church back in Jerusalem. So Silas is a bit of a who's who in Christendom in the first century. He's well known. He would be known in that region that, that Peter is writing because part of that region is where Silas served with Paul earlier on Paul's second missionary journey. So there's a lot of connections here. The phrase that scholars love to, to discuss is verse 12, through Silvanus. What does that through mean? There are some who argue that Silvanus, not Peter, wrote this letter or a portion thereof. I have real problems with that. First of all, Silvanus is never mentioned at the beginning of the letter. And as we have seen time and time again, Peter's life is just all over this book, right? So I have real problems with that, as most scholars do. There are those who argue, no, Silvanus is a secretary or the technical term, here's your 50 cent word, amuensis. You won't be able to fit that in Wordle if you play. But a secretary or an amuensis is someone who comes along and Peter or Paul, Paul used an amuensis. He used a secretary. We know that in Romans because he said, now I'm going to sign it with my own hand, meaning the rest of the letter was written by somebody else. In other words, Paul dictated it and the scribe put it down for Paul. 1 Corinthians 16, we know that there is a secretary or an amuensis. The NIV translates it accordingly. If you have an NIV, it says, with the help of Savannah. It means he wrote it. I have a problem with that view as well. Uh, and there's a couple reasons. One is there is no evidence in first century letter writing where a scribe, secretary, amuensis is applauded, commended. And notice, Savannah is commended. See what it says? He's a faithful brother. So that doesn't seem to fit. More likely, it's simply Savannah is the messenger. He's the FedEx of the first century, right? He's the carrier. Let me take this. I'll deliver it for you, Peter, to this region. There's a, another kicker. There's been some more research done on this recently. The Greek formula here through Savannah, I'm writing, is, ne is used solely for carriers. It's never used of secretaries. So now we got those who want to argue for A or B, it just doesn't fit. This has to be, Savannah is simply the carrier of the letter to the church. And notice Paul or Peter says, I have written to you briefly. It's only 105 verses. It's not a long letter. Not like some of the other letters like Romans in the New Testament. I know you've, you've 
question that with us, with two pastors taking nearly a year to preach through it. But nonetheless, um, <clears throat> it is brief. Again, commentators quibble, what in the world does Peter mean by this? And I think Michael's hits the nail on the head. He says, Peter is trying to keep things in perspective. A few lines are sufficient answer to a little suffering. Suffering, it's not little in that it's significant to them, but it is temporary. And that's what Peter's highlighted time and time again. So we see that Sylvanus is helping deliver the letter, one that Peter is endorsing here in the note. And then Peter gives us two reasons for why he has written this letter. We don't have to guess. Why was this, why was this letter penned? Peter tells us, and we've seen it time and time again in our studies. First of all, it's written to encourage. He says to encourage you. And that term has already occurred in Peter's a little writing. He's, he's, he's wanting them to hang in there, to persevere. And again, we've talked about this several times in our journey the second is to declare, to encourage, and then to declare. Notice he says, and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Now, the question is, what is the this, Peter? What are you referring to? Some would argue that it's the grace that he's referring to. It's mentioned three times in this letter. In immediate context, it seems to be the grace. And that is, the argument is, it's the grace that awaits in the future. It's a future notion that Peter's talking about. Be encouraged, the present, and then look and know what we have for the future. Another view is, no, 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 no. He's talking about the sufferings that they've gone through. Be encouraged, and I've testified that these sufferings is a, an opportunity to, to participate in Christ's sufferings. I would argue that the, this is the entire letter. It's all of the above. It's not just what is present, but also future. And all of this really does encompass grace and all that that entails, the grace for the present again and the grace for the future. We've mentioned this several times. This letter is a testimony, isn't it, to the grace of God, a grace that affects how we engage others, the moral commands that are given, the doctrine that's given. And again, this is why this letter is often called the epistle of grace. You think about it, the entire Christian life is based on grace. It's God's blessing of, of, that he's bestowed on us, the strength that we need, the help, the forgiveness, the fellowship, etc. Chafer, in his systematic theology, talks about the benefits of grace, which we've seen time and time again in 1 Peter. Grace is a, a blessing of acceptance. We are his. And as they're suffering, what a comfort to know to these believers, you belong to the Lord. There's a blessing of enablement. You've been freed from the enslavement to sin. You've been freed from the law. There's a blessing of position. Oh, First Peter is great, right? He says, you are, you're a chosen generation. You are a nation that's his. And there's a blessing of inheritance that grace allows us to be complete in him. And know there's a day that comes as we are heirs of heaven. Christianity is distinct from all religions because it is a message of grace. Recently I had the opportunity to present to a public middle school. They have a crew, has a, a meeting in the mornings. And thanks to 
I'm going to give a shout out to Cheryl Reitz and others who oversee that program. They have about 50 kids. But uh, there was a, a young lady, sixth grader, very bright. And afterwards she said, you know, I find religion fascinating, but it's, it is a bit of a crutch. And I, I just find it odd. And I said, you know, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> She's looking at me. I said, it's about a relationship with Jesus. That's what makes Christianity unique. It isn't like any other religion because it's, it, it's steeped, it's soaked through with grace. And without grace, Christianity is meaningless. And so here in this letter, as again, I think this is, Peter says, I write to encourage you. I also have given you this testimony, this letter which speaks of the grace of God. And then he says, here's a command. He's not done. That fatherly role, that, that elder that cares for the church, he says, stand fast in the grace of God. Well, how do you stand fast? I, think, I was thinking through that this week. How do you stand fast in grace? And I couldn't think of, but of a better example. As some of you know, I used to lead tours to Israel and my colleague, Rich Blumenstock, and I, we had developed a system because in the Middle East, there's no such thing as a line. And you take a group of Christians and they're all trying to be nicey-nice, especially so they don't blow their testimony with other believers they are on the trip. And so they're just nicey and they're too nice. And the next thing I know, our line is a hundred long because two other groups have come in. So I, I keep telling them, no, you have to show loving Christian aggression on a trip. It can't, it can't work any other way. So my colleague and I developed the stand. We would stand, he'd stand on this side and I'd stand on this side and nothing shall come between our group, right? I did interference over here. He did inter interference over there. It was called a stand and you stood fast. You, you didn't, you had to keep your antennas up. You had to know who your chicks were and to make sure they were all together. Standing fast in grace is, I would argue, it's paying attention. It's not losing sight to what's transpiring. You can't yield. There's, there's no wavering. There's no distraction. There's no rest. In other words, standing fast in the grace is standing fast in what Peter has stated in this letter. Holding to it. Not wavering. Not losing sight of your position in Christ. Persevering in the midst of suffering. Remember Peter? <laughs> Thought he could walk on water and he does for a very short period. But then he gets distracted and everything goes south. He's not standing fast. And Peter says to the church, stand fast in the true grace of God. It, 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 it's so significant. The grace is the empowerment and the prize for faithfulness. I know it's interesting. Standing fast is found earlier when he says stand against the devil. But standing fast in grace is also found in Paul's writings. He mentions it in Romans 5. In Romans 5, he gives these words, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. There is a positional standing in this grace, and there's an ongoing clinging to it, holding fast. And Paul goes on, And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Not only that, we also boast in our sufferings. Sounds a little like 1 Peter, doesn't it? knowing that the suffering produces endurance. 
Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. And so, the first command in these parting words, Peter says, stand fast in the grace. Don't waver. Then he gives us some greetings. The church in Babylon and don't miss this next phrase, chosen together with you. This is huge. Now, in the Greek, it's referred to as she greets you. And some would argue that's Peter's wife. Well, Peter's wife wasn't mentioned anywhere else in this letter. We have no record of her traveling with Peter in his journeys. I don't think that's at all the case. It's the church. She is the church. And often the church is referred to as a woman throughout Scripture. But who is Babylon? Where is the she in Babylon? Now, we could argue, well, this is ancient Babylon, you know, in modern Iraq. The problem is, in the first century, there was a very, well, there's no record of a church in the first century in Babylon. The town was a has-been. It was really a small little burg on the map. And there's no record of Peter going to Babylon and Iraq. Some would argue it's Egypt. There was a Roman garrison in, near Cairo that was called Babylon. But, again, Peter, there's no connection of tradition of him being there. And secondly, it's a Roman garrison. I, I would be shocked if there was a church in the first century within the Roman garrison. That's sending greetings. That, that doesn't fit either. No, I believe this is a reference to Rome. She's referred to in Revelation 16 through 18. And one scholar writes, just as in the Old Testament Babylon, now think about the connections here. What do we know about our audience? They're referred to as sojourners. They're exiles. They're in suffering. They're being persecuted. What better thing to then to relate to the Israelites of old who were taken into to Babylon? They were in exile. They were being persecuted. And so in the time of the New Testament, Rome is the earthly center of a worldwide system of government and life which opposes the gospel. In other words, it becomes a code word. It's like the Big Apple. We immediately know what city I'm referring to. Or Sin City, you're thinking of Las Vegas, right? Here, when we refer to Babylon, it's a code word for the believers. Ah, you're referring to Rome. You, you say, why is that so significant? Well, it's huge. Let me give you some implications. First of all, Peter's recipients, they're not alone. Ignore you. Notice what the text says. They have been chosen as well. Those believers who are suffering in Rome can relate. They too have claimed Christ. They too are suffering and they too are right there with you and they send you their greetings. Secondly, it's a reminder of God's protection. Just as he protected those of old in the exile taken to Babylon, he will watch over them. It's another reminder as well. This is not our home. Thank the Lord, right? I would hate to think that we are, this is the millennium. If it is, bummer, right? Fourth, just as the exiles of Babylon were delivered, there's a glorious future that awaits all believers. There's an exile that's yet to come. Just as it was then, it will be for them. And so to me, the reference to Babylon is such an encouragement to the early church, and it should be to us as well. We're not alone in this. Peter already said, there are, individuals suffering just like us. And what a comfort to know 
But we need to stand fast with those that are also standing fast. You know, and I think also there's such an encouragement because the next name, Mark, John Mark. You may remember his mama's house was used by the early church. In fact, Peter used it as headquarters in Jerusalem was her home. That's mentioned in the book of Acts several times. So obviously there's a development. In fact, he refers to him as my son here in verse 13, which is not a physical, but a, a spiritual relationship. One of uh, intimacy in the sense of on a spiritual realm, this is a guy I've worked with closely. I've mentored him. I've worked with him. John Mark also, if you recall, headed on Paul's first missionary journey and things didn't go very well, did they? <laughs> Oops. There was a bit of a falling out. The good news is later in Paul's letters, there's restoration. But I also think probably during that time, Peter also took John Mark. He said, you know, yeah, I know Peter's, or Paul's type A. Hang in there. Let's work on this, right? And, and so you see this. He joined, and so the second missionary journey, he joins his cousin Barnabas. And they go back to the same territory. And again, this close relationship with John Mark. And obviously he's become a prominent leader because we have no record of John Mark serving in modern Turkey in the first century. So what that tells us is that Mark is known in the early church and he sends his greetings as well. So you see this affection from both sides. And then you come to the second command, which I've titled love one another, but here it says greet one another with a kiss of love. Paul will close out four of his letters with the same exhortation. Kiss, greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, these are not romantic overtones. All right, so get that out of your mind. It was a common ancient greeting, especially among family members. How significant. It, it's, it's hard to hold a grudge or a little be, to be a little angry with someone if you got to give them a hug, right? Everybody needs a hug. Well, if you got to hug them, unless you want to wring their neck, you, you got to, you know, come in. And this is more than just a handshake, but it, it, it's a way, a kiss in the first century was on the cheek or on the forehand or forehead, excuse me, or on the hand. That's the idea here. But what I think peers do is you, you guys need to come together. We're in this together. One commentator says, First Peter is in fact a kind of kiss of love from Peter and from Rome. Isn't that great? And Peter's saying, if I, if I was there, I would do this, but you need to greet one another with a holy kiss. There's benefits in, this, in these relationships that come with physical expression of friendship and fellowship in Christ. And again, it, it's hard to be critical of others if you have to love them well. Earlier, and this is not, again, this is nothing new. It's the same with standing fast. These commands, he's already reiterated in the book or highlighted in this letter. 122, Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. And 4.8, he says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. I just love being part of a body of believers that have latched on to loving God and loving others. It flows from a group who understand grace, doesn't it? If you're holding fast to the grace that you've been given, 
How can you not but love? And so Peter says this here. And then he closes with peace to all you who are in Christ. <laughs> peace is mentioned five times in First and Second Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 2, it, we are, it's the gospel of peace. It's, we are called by God, set apart from the Holy Spirit for obedience and sprinkled with Christ's blood. Also, we see peace as part of the Godhead. God the Father is the God of peace, we see in 1, 2. Uh, in fact, 1 Thessalonians. Christ is also our peace in Ephesians and the Holy Spirit, as we know, is the source of peace, Galatians 5. 1 Peter 3, he says, grace is, or peace is what governs a believer's life. And then in 2 Peter, he'll mention it two more times. Of all the ways to close out your letter, you, you say, peace? They're suffering, Peter. Peter knows that. He knows it full well. He too has suffered. But I mean, peace? Are you serious? It seems so flippant. And the circumstances they're surrounding, and you may even say this morning, hey, Hoffman, I'm a Christian, but peace? You gotta be kidding. I'm battling cancer. I'm struggling with a relationship. My marriage is dissolving. I've got a wayward kid, or I'm battling personal, mental issues, such as depression, and you're telling me to have peace? How can that be? Well, the key is found in the verse. Notice what it says, peace to all. It's not just for those who have it together, those that are the elders, no, to all who are, and here it is, in Christ. There's two keys here that you mustn't miss this morning. True peace is found only in Christ. It's not found in ourselves. I don't care how many ooms you do or little yogas with your legs crossed. I couldn't do that if I tried. But anyway, uh, that's not true peace. Peace is found in Christ. Being united with him and all the benefits of redemption. I mean, what is, how is peace defined in the New Testament? It's the breaking down of hostilities. Who broke down the hostilities? What do you mean there were warring parties? The warring parties was between us and God. And what Christ accomplished at the cross was to bring peace between God and humanity through redemption. And, and I love, what is peace cardinal duo? I mean, who does he hang out with? Grace. You see it time and time again. It's how the letter started. Started with grace and peace. He concludes with grace and peace. It's not a coincidence. It's what these believers who are suffering in a world that is extremely hostile to the things of the Lord. He says, grace and peace. <laughs> again, how? It's through Christ. True peace is established in our salvation, accomplished by Christ, sustained in our relationship with Christ, and secured in glory with Christ. Peter's greeting of peace at the end is really, in some ways, a parting imperative. In other words, you could rephrase it. You are all Christians. Show it in your, in your lives by clinging fast to Christ. So, True peace is found in Christ, and I would also add true peace is not just for eternity. You see these announcements of people who've passed on, it says, well, may they rest in peace. Well, that, yes, there's an element to that, but there's peace now for the believer. It's not just when you're six foot under, presence of the Lord. No, 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 no. 
For the believer, the blessings are not benefits just for eternal glory. They're a present possession. Peter has harped on this time and time again in the letter. So does Paul. Romans 8, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. How? Because what is one of the fruits of the spirit? Peace. Again, it's not found in us. It's found in Christ, well, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Colossians 3, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called to the one body and be thankful. It's such a, an appropriate ending for this letter. Peter's suffering. The believers that he's writing to are suffering. And in the midst of it all, he says, ah, peace, baby, peace. <laughs> peace be yours because you are in Christ. And so what do we walk away with? Three words. I'm, the three points there at the bottom. I've got encouragement, equipment, and enjoyment. <laughs> Let me explain. The first is encouragement. This epistle is another reminder that God's grace can sustain us. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you. He's referring to what the Lord told him. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness, so I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The old saying is true. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. <laughs> That's... That's what you see here. Stand fast in the grace. I don't care if it's a bad day, good day. You need God's grace. And we have it, which is fantastic. So you see the encouragement. There's the equipment. And that is the grace that is extended to us. Notice I, I wrote, when we are tempted to give up on the responsibilities God has given us, we need to remind ourselves that our gracious God has appointed us to those tasks. He's given it to us. If he's assigned us the task, he's going to give us the resources to do it. Brian Tappel makes this great statement. Resting on God's grace does not relieve us of our holy obligations. Rather, it enables us to fulfill them. It's right. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 3, if the gospel I've come as a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power, although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring it to the Gentiles, the news of the boundless riches of Christ. And so Paul can say, hey, and Peter can echo it here as well. The Lord will give you the grace that you need, the resources you need. And finally, there's enjoyment. In the midst of uncertainties, doubts, struggles, and trials, and I know there's some this morning that you are going through those. I prayed with a couple of you this morning. We shed some tears together. The Christ follower can cling joyfully to the promise of peace. Again, you say, how, how can you say that? Well, Philippians 4, Paul, who is in prison, possibly facing death at that point, writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, I suspect you can echo with me or rehearse, recall an incident where the chaos was swirling. (laughs) The world you know had been turned upside down, whether it's the death of a loved one, a meeting with a physician that delivered words you hoped you would never hear, or a relationship that has dissolved. And you're not sure what will be the next course of action. Trust me, I've been there. I, I don't know where to go. You turn to the Lord. It's like the psalmist, Psalm 13. Lord, where are you in all this? And as the psalmist goes on in that short little psalm, it says, one thing I know, I can trust you. You bend your knee and there's a peace that comes that no words can describe. Usually I'll have people say, well, I know people are praying. What do they mean by that? (laughs) The saints are rallying around and there's a sense of peace that comes. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here in Philippians 4. We are so often terrified, one minister writes, by our predicaments, while all the time there's the scaffold of God's care beneath us. Our ignorance doesn't change the certainty, but it does destroy the peace, doesn't it? We need to remember that underneath are the everlasting arms, and you don't know that until your fingers start to slip and drop that no, 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 you, you have something underneath. And that's where the grace of God steeps in and the peace comes. Think about Peter for a minute. How many times did he hear the Lord say peace? I went back to the Gospels. There are four major incidences where the Lord says peace. There's the woman with the hemorrhaging of blood who reaches out and grabs the garment of Jesus. And Jesus, after a determining we we got that settled he he says daughter your faith has made you well go in peace peter was there (laughs) he saw it all happen peter was there when the woman who anointed jesus feet with the tears coming down and wiping his feet with her hair jesus says peter heard it your faith has saved you go in peace the upper room when jesus is revealing that he is going to have to go suffer John 14, Jesus tells Peter and gang, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the whole world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. And in the post-resurrection account, there's at least three occurrences, once in Luke, two in John, where Jesus will appear before the disciples. And what does he say? Peace be with you. In the midst of the uncertainties, doubts, struggles, and trials, Peter can tell you, listen, as a Christ follower, cling to the promise of the peace of God that comes. And he can tell it to these believers, peace be all to all of you. Why? Because you're in Christ. I love the lyrics to the old hymn, there's within my heart a melody, Jesus whispers sweet and low, fear not, I am with thee, Peace be still in all of life's ebbs and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. Isn't that great? That's the peace of God that comes, the grace. 
And as Peter closes out this book, again, it's bookend. He started with grace and peace. He comes to it at the end. The only two commands are wrapped up, and in, 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 in a sense, there's love, but wrapped up into this of standing fast. And as you love one another, bask in the peace that comes of knowing who Christ is. What an exhortation for us in 2023. One of the things that we do is take communion here at the church and you should have received or hopefully you did. I know we've got some ushers with some baskets. If you didn't, it's communion. Charles Spurgeon, the English pastor, minister of the 1800s, makes this profound statement. There can be no peace between you and God while there is peace between you and sin. Communion is to remember what Christ has accomplished for us, and that is he gave his life for our sin, not his, ours. And as we come to communion, and it's such a beautiful picture of the grace of God, the peace that comes. You may be sitting there this morning and say, I don't know any of this. In fact, you've wallowed in sin way too long. And the albatrosses are hanging around your neck. That is guilt. That is peace that you know you don't have. <laughs> you just pray you don't have to walk through another dark valley because you have no, nothing there to tap into. Christ has come to give you a reservoir that does not end. And so this morning... I challenge you, this really isn't for you because this is a remembrance of what Christ has done. This morning, you need to bend your knee before the Lord and say, no, I, I'm gonna follow you, Christ. I'm gonna recognize that I am a sinner and that the only means for salvation is through your son's blood that was shed on the cross. And I cling to this and I make you my savior, my Lord. For some of us this morning, life's been hard even this week. One of our own, Sandy Brown, went to be with the Lord. Some of us are mourning losses. The Hodaps lost a brother-in-law this week. For some, it was hearing, oh, I've got COVID or I've got cancer. And for others, you've shared our marriage is really struggling. It's time just to, to bow the knee before the Lord. Cling to the peace that he gives, the grace that's extended. So let's spend some time just preparing our hearts for this glorious moment of celebrating what he has done. marvelous is that grace that you lavished on us we know Lord as followers of your son Jesus as Christ followers Lord we can echo the words of that hymn in my heart rings a melody 
because of the life's difficulties and the struggles, we know a peace that only can come from your hand. Father, that's all been made possible because of the cross. And we thank you for your grace. Lord, cleanse us. We are unclean people. <laughs> Forgive us for those things that we've done this week we know we shouldn't or things we should have done and we didn't. Purify our hearts. And Lord, as we come collectively as a body of believers to this table, Lord, we want to emulate what we declared earlier in this service. Indeed, you are holy. And that is our desire for our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting, the context of 1 Corinthians 11, where Peter, excuse me, Paul will highlight this whole Lord's Supper. It's in the context of disunity and calling them to love one another. I thought it was fitting here that Peter would do the same with his body of believers. Love one another, but in so doing, man, stand fast in the grace. Recognize what Christ has accomplished. And that's what Paul will do in 1 Corinthians 11 because he said, you know, I received from the Lord, he writes, what I also handed to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he'd given thanks, think about that, knowing full well what it represents. He gave thanks. He broke it. And he said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What grace, what peace. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son's willingness to give of his body, to shed his blood so that we could have a restored relationship with you. And as stated in 2 Corinthians, so that Christ's own righteousness could be reckoned to our account. It's him paying for our sins, which allows us to be declared righteous before you. And we thank you. Father, may we not lose sight of what you have done. May we not grow dull, but may we stand fast in the grace that you've given, loving one another and basking in the peace that you've lavished on us. In the name of the Prince of Peace, our gracious Lord and Savior Jesus, we pray.